opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome everyone to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, your host, and today we are going to be looking at recovery from a little bit different perspective. We have a wonderful guest, and her name is Maria Hornbacher, who has published a number of books on anorexia and mental illness. And her first book, Wasted, a memoir of anorexia and bulimia, she wrote when she was 23. It has been published in 14 languages. It has been used as a teaching tool in universities and writing programs all over the world and has, according to thousands of letters that Maria has received over the years, helped to change people's lives. We're going to also be talking to her about mental illness, and she also has another memoir, Madness, A Life, is an intense, beautifully written book about the difficulties and promises of living with mental illness. It is already being called the most visceral, important book on mental illness to be published in years. And that was recently published um, by Hazleton, I believe. Um, Maria is a recipient of a host of awards for journalism, and she has been a Pulitzer Prize nominee. She has lectured at universities around the country, taught writing and literature, and has published in academic and literary journals since 1992. She lives in Minneapolis with her husband, Jeff, and their cat Shakespeare and T.S. Eliot, and their miniature dachshunds, Milton and Dante. Welcome, Maria. How are you today? I'm good, thank you very much. And first of all, let me ask you about your cat, because I know one of them had been very ill, and I just wondered how he's doing. Well, thank you for asking. Shakespeare, unfortunately, passed away a couple of weeks oh. ago. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, Thanks. Um, we we kind of focus on recovery and and how people get on with their lives. And I think what we also try to do is is really emphasize that um, mental illness and and addictions are brain diseases, and that people um, develop these illnesses for a variety of reasons. And that um, and that this isn't really about people making bad choices. It's about people that have illnesses. And I was wondering if we could begin talking a little bit about Wasted, which is um, focuses on anorexia and bulimia, which um, are also brain diseases as well. So could you begin a little bit by explaining um, what compelled you at 23 to write the, the memoir? In uh, in 1998, when that memoir was published, there was very little information out there about anorexia and bulimia that was particularly straightforward. There was a lot of glamorized information. There was a lot of misinformation. Uh, and I felt that it was really necessary to get the picture across of what anorexia and bulimia were really, really like. They're difficult and dangerous diseases. They're not pretty. Uh, they are not to be envied. And um, what I was talking about in that book was how the culture that we live in really encourages us to hate our bodies, to have mixed relationships with food, and really fosters the eating disordered culture. Um, so it was important to me to talk about things in a pretty straightforward and frank manner, and I think that that is what Wasted did. Um, just for our audience's uh, information, could you explain the difference between anorexia and bulimia? 
Sure. Anorexia is uh, a pattern of starving and often compulsive exercise. Um, anorexics do eat. Uh, they eat uh, in, in very limited quantities, and they, they effectively starve themselves. They are deeply malnourished, um, and many of them die very young. They have a very, very high rate of fatality. Um, bulimia is a cycle of binging and purging, uh, again, often with compulsive exercise. Um, and people with bulimia often are told, well, you don't look like you have an eating disorder because oftentimes they don't have an abnormal weight. Um, that's very frustrating because people with bulimia are also deeply malnourished and very much at risk of losing their lives. Uh, they are very dangerous diseases, and I think it's important for people to know that. When we, we think about eating disorders, there's also, <clears throat> on the other spectrum, there's also morbid obesity. And um, from your perspective, are all of these just uh, different illnesses on a continuum, or is there something different about morbid obesity? The morbid obesity itself is not a disease. The disease I think you're referencing is binge eating disorder, uh, which of course leads in many cases to morbid obesity. Um, but obesity has in, in many cases other factors as well. Binge eating disorder is absolutely on the same spectrum actually as bulimia and anorexia, which I think is hard for people to believe even, uh, certainly to understand because they see no, they say, how can it be the same thing to starve yourself and to, to binge to such an extent? Um, they really are, though, manifestations of using food for emotional reasons uh, or restricting food for emotional reasons. They are also reflective of a deeply distorted body image uh, that so many people in, in our cultures have, uh, but the distortion for an eating disordered person is really radical. Um, so, yes, I do think they exist really on a continuum. You know, it's really interesting because when I think about body image, um, I know very few people who are really comfortable with the way that they look. Exactly. It's very hard for any of us to get comfortable in our bodies when we live in a culture that really says you can't be comfortable in your body. You must find a problem with your body. Difference is not acceptable. Uh, variety in body shape and size is not acceptable. And I think, and I say this in Wasted, it's as if we're all under the impression that there is one perfect body out there and we're going to get it. Uh, and so this, this drive toward thinness, toward um, perfection, and the equation of thinness with perfection <clears throat> is damaging to all of us, certainly not just people with eating disorders. You know, I, I think back to, like, Twiggy, um, who was a model who became very famous in the, in the 60s. And I think from, from, from my perspective, she was the first really, really skinny woman I saw that was really made into being glamorous. Prior to that, I can remember people just being too skinny and that not being okay. Yes, absolutely. Things are things have changed so dramatically in how we look at what's healthy and what's beautiful. Uh, Twiggy was the advent, really, of the anorexic look in in media, uh, and although there was a precursor era with the flapper era era in the twenties. Um, that very boyish figure, that sort of asexual, um, in many cases unhealthy figure for most of us. Most of us can't look like a twig and shouldn't look like a twig. It's not healthy for us. Um, but that, that glamorization of an anorexic figure did really get kicked off with Twiggy, and that is also where you see the advent of a huge boom in eating disorders. 
Is there any correlation between um, the women's movement and the advent of or the increased prevalence of eating disorders? That's an excellent question, and yes, there is. Hilda Brook, who was an early eating disorders researcher, talks about how uh, the prevalence of, of eating disorders just jumped uh, with the advent of the women's movement. Um, you know, you, you want to be careful with that because people will say, well, if women had, uh, you know, more traditional roles, we'd, we'd lose uh, eating disorders. That's not accurate either. Um, it's, it's just a, it's a correlation where all of us, when our role in society is transitioning, become very insecure, become very uncertain as to who we are, what we are, and we look for things to cling to. And many of us who have a tendency toward addiction cling too hard uh, to something that is comforting to us at that period of time. So when the women's movement started taking hold and changes started happening for women in their roles, uh, many women became very anxious about things. Um, and the the cultural ideal of beauty got smaller and smaller and smaller as women's role became bigger and bigger. That's really interesting um, because you would think that um, that as as our roles changed, that that we would be able to handle that and feel more confident with our bodies instead of less. You would think that, but. I think it's also really understandable how in a culture that had been so dominant for so long, uh, we as women in many cases felt very apologetic for literally taking up more space in our society. Uh, and the apology we made was to shuttle down our bodies, was to shrink our bodies, become smaller, uh, and take up less space. There, there is also a correlation again in the 90s when you saw a second phase of the women's movement. An eating disorder skyrocketed, um, and and people went, what is the correlation here? Well, the correlation, um, there are a number of researchers who talked about this, Susan Faludi and Naomi Wolf in The Beauty Myth especially, talked about how women were really saying, we're sorry, we don't know uh, we don't we don't feel like we deserve this kind of space in society, and so we're going to become increasingly obsessed with our figures and our looks. You know, I think um, I kind of want to segue into some of the myths that we know or that we perceive about folks that have anorexia and bulimia, is that these are female diseases, but men develop these diseases as well. Is that not true? That's absolutely true, and men's eating disorders are getting more and more common. They're very, very common, uh, increasingly common among young men and boys. Uh, they've, they've existed in men all this time, uh, certainly, but there's so much secrecy surrounding eating disorders in the male population. Um, there's, there's a great deal of shame about it because it is perceived as a women's and a girl's disease. Uh, and so in, in many cases, men and boys have not come forward to get help, but it's also true that the the prevalence of eating disorders among men and young men is getting very high very fast. What are some other myths that um, people may harbor under that we should inform them that aren't true? I think the most common myth is that it's a little white girl's disease. Uh, first of all, it's not a little girl's the majority of people who have eating disorders are, of course, adult women who did, in fact, develop their eating disorders younger. Uh, but there, there is a huge number uh, of, of women who deal with this as adults, even as older adults, um, and that, uh, that it is 
purely the province of of the white population is is inaccurate as well and is very damaging because women of color and men of color who seek help for eating disorders are often told effectively you don't have an eating disorder you can't have an eating disorder because this this population doesn't get eating disorders uh there's a great deal of discrimination then in in people who are trying to get help for their disorder so that's the most common myth that it's a little white girl's disease. Um, the the second myth is that it's a phase, uh, that it's just something that teenage girls go through, uh, that it's normative. Uh, there is actually a phrase in, in the psychiatric circles of normative disorder, which is of course, an oxymoron. Uh, there's no such thing as a normative disorder, um, but there is certainly the commonality that young women and young men going through transitions of puberty and then getting older and then going into college age, um, that there is so much transition and turmoil in their lives that, again, they cling to something that seems very stable and very steady, uh, and that can be the obsessiveness of a disorder and also the obsession with the appearance. I know early on in my career, which was um, in the early 80s, one of the ways we kind of characterized someone with an eating disorder is someone who was really in need of being in control and that being in control had something to do with it and trauma also had something to do with it. Do either one of those things still hold true? They do both hold true. Um, eating disorders are are very, very controlled uh, behaviors. They are, of course, when one has an eating disorder, one really is out of control, but it feels as if one controls uh, one's food intake, one's body, uh, and that gives, that gives people with an eating disorder a feeling of power and a sense of accomplishment. Uh, and that, that sense of power is very illusory because one also feels like one can't stop. You really feel like I'm unable to change this behavior, uh, and yet you cling to it uh, because it is it is rapidly what what you know and what feels comfortable and familiar to you. Trauma. And we'll be right back to talk about trauma and eating disorders after this commercial break. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Ladies, are you looking for a place where you can talk candidly about anything and everything? Well, here it is. Timeless Women Speak on the Voice America Women's Channel. We'll talk about sexuality, age-proofing your career, finding your passion and purpose, keeping your brain power, keeping your marriage fresh, dating for grown-ups, plastic surgery, surviving our beauty culture, and much more. Tune in Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific to Timeless Women Speak with Dr. Nancy O'Reilly on the Voice America Women's channel. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Step into a healthier you. Voice America Health & Wellness. 
You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. Today, our guest is Maria Hornbacher, and we're talking about her book, Wasted, a Memoir of Anorexia and Bulimia. And prior to going to break, uh, Maria was explaining to us the correlation between being in control or feeling like you were in control while you were really out of control with with, uh, the effects of an eating disorder. And then um, before I cut her off, she was going to talk to us about the correlation between trauma and eating disorders. So, uh, Maria, could you continue, please? Sure. I was just going to say that trauma often plays a role in uh, the development of an eating disorder. It certainly does not play a role across the board. I experienced no particular trauma growing up. Um, I, I had a very uh, chaotic childhood, but there was no there was no great trauma. There was no abuse, uh, and that's certainly true for many many people. Especially as the rates of eating disorders get higher and higher, they are are hitting people across the board with or without trauma. In many cases, also you see an underlying mental disorder, uh, depression, bipolar, obsessive compulsive disorder, anxiety disorder. Those often morph in. To, uh, into an eating disorder for people because, again, it helps them feel like they are in control of what can feel out of control. Well, I think the other thing um, that I've noticed along the line, too, is that when people get into recovery from one brain disease, whether it's alcoholism or um, drug addiction, oftentimes we look for substitutes. You know, so um, I, I've noticed that oftentimes people will will be in recovery from alcoholism or other drugs of abuse, and they'll start gambling or they gain forty pounds, or or that part of the brain is still looking to be excited in some way. You know, and um, and I think that for a lot of time we see food as an okay stimulant or an okay thing, and that. You know, well, it's better if somebody gains weight than drinks, or it's better if somebody, you know, gains weight than um, is out, you know, shooting heroin. Absolutely. There is, in all of us who are addicts, there is that, that brain piece that needs, as you said, the stimulation of, of addictive behavior, but also that is looking for that thing to cling to uh, in, in some form of addictive behavior. I know that for myself, when my eating disorder began to get under control, my alcoholism went through the roof. Uh, and that's, that's very, very common for people um, to, in their recovery from, uh, from one form of addiction, to switch to another form of addiction. Because, like you say, you're looking for something to hang on to, and that, that hole in you is not filled. I was talking to a woman um, a couple weeks ago who had had gastric bypass surgery, and she was telling me that people who who go through gastric bypass surgery or the stomach banding, um, there's a high rate of people who develop alcoholism afterwards. I didn't know that. That's fascinating, but it makes yeah. perfect sense to me. Well, it does. I mean, when you, when you understand the the nature of addiction and, and what's going on, but um, I think that that's, that's why 
you know, there's no one silver bullet for any type of addictive disorder. There's not a magic pill. There's not a magic operation that you really need to come at this through a biopsychosocial spiritual perspective. Absolutely. And I'm I'm wondering, from your perspective, what is the most effective treatment for people who have uh, anorexia and bulimia? I think the most effective treatment is exactly what you're saying. It's multifaceted, and unfortunately, that kind of treatment is not very readily available out there because treatment for eating disorders so often tries to just target the behavior, uh, the eating, not eating, the binging, not binging, the purging, not purging. Uh, there's there's so much so much focus on on getting that under control that there's very little attention paid to like what you're saying about the, about the emotional and spiritual aspects of the disorder and of the addiction. Um, the most effective treatment that's out there does come at it from a multifaceted approach and acknowledges it as an addiction. Uh, many people aren't aware that eating disorders are addictive and are an addiction. Uh, many people see it, like I said, as a phase or as something less serious, but it is addictive. It is an addiction. And the places where you get the treatment that comes at it from an emotional, spiritual, and physical place is the most effective treatment. How would a consumer, where would you begin to even look for treatment for eating disorders? There are eating disorders departments and wards in most of the major hospitals um, around the country. Uh, There is at least someone who can refer you to a local eating disorders facility. Um, Some great ones are are, uh, based in New York. There are some great ones in the South. There's a very good one here in Minnesota. Uh, There's another good one in, in Kansas. Um, and and those places uh, those places really try to like I said target the multifaceted uh, the multifaceted issues that a person with an eating disorder deals with. There are also websites online. Thejoyproject.com is one, um, and there are referral uh, websites on there where you can look up a local treatment center in your area. What role does peer support and um kind of 12-step facilitation groups have in the recovery from someone with an eating disorder? It has almost no... it has almost no attention paid to it. There, there is so much promise in the area of 12, 12-step approach to eating disorder recovery. Uh, unfortunately, it's not used very commonly because the approach to recovery is so often so, so medical, medica-focused. Uh, forgive me, I mangled that one. Um, but it's not, uh, it's not used very often. There are the 12 steps of eating disorders, uh, and there is a group called Eating Disorders Anonymous. It's very hard to find those meetings, and so I think it's it's incumbent upon us really to start those meetings and to get the word out that there is a there is an application of the twelve steps for eating disorders. I know there used to be Overeaters Anonymous as well. Um, there sure is to this day. Right, right. You know, I think that um, we talk about America becoming you know fatter, and um, we we seem as a society to just um, we're either we're at either ends of the bell curve. We're either at too thin or too fat, and um, it kind of makes you wonder what the role is with our media um, in terms of of how we look. I mean, I know I take my daughter, who's twenty four now, to the she still gets into juniors, and they're size zero. I don't, you know, who wears a size zero? Yeah. It's not. It's not very healthy for most of us. Uh, very, very few adults can uh, can can attain that kind of 
uh, stereotypical ideal, and it's not a really healthy ideal for most of us. Um, and, and the role of the media is enormous because so many of us uh, are very, very influenced by every form of media. We see billboards, we see magazines, we see television, we see every form of media telling us that there is this one perfect type of beauty, and we are so unaware of our own individual beauty that uh, we, we keep trying to manipulate our weight. Uh, again, it's a, twofold, uh, it's a twofold thing. Part of this is the body image obsession. Part of it is the way that we use food. So that's where you see us appearing at both ends of the bell curve, where we are either too heavy, too uh, underweight. Uh, in any case, we do not have a healthy body sense. We, do, we are not feeding ourselves in a healthy way. Uh, and that, that kind of dichotomy between the either or, uh, not eating, eating too much, uh, it just reflects the overall lack of balance, I think, in our society. And, you know, I think what makes eating disorders especially challenging for people is that, you know, you can live without alcohol, you can live without heroin, but it's really hard not to eat. You know, Absolutely. It's, it's, it's That's that's exactly right. It's very hard to develop a healthy relationship with food. I mean, I can exactly, as you say, I can live without alcohol. I can, I can abstain. You can't abstain from food. You shouldn't abstain from food, of course. Uh, and so you have to learn to develop a healthy relationship, which is very, very challenging in a, in a world where very few people are there to show you what a healthy relationship with food looks like. When I was, when I was beginning recovery from my eating disorders, I was looking around for role models and I could find almost none. I mean, ultimately, I did find some wonderful friends in my life who really did teach me how to eat and taught me what normal, healthy eating was going to look like. But they are few and far between. So what is your advice to folks who are listening and who are either um, currently treating people or um, wanting to learn how to assess their eating disorders? I think the most important thing is to look at the whole person, not just the symptomology of, of the eating behaviors. Uh, look at how this person feels about themselves. Look at how this person feels about the images that they're shown. Look at how this person feels about the addictive nature of their behavior. Uh, and again, approach it in this multifaceted way. You're really, you're really going to be the most helpful, uh, person in their, in their recovery if you are open-minded about what they individually need. I think the trouble with, with treatment is that it is so standardized, uh, that it does not work for every person. There's an idea that there is one type of eating disordered person and that is the only type. That's not true. We're very individual. People who develop eating disorders run across the spectrum of the world. And so we need to approach them uh, with a very open-minded and really open-hearted uh, way of coming at it. But I guess one of the last things I would like to just um, talk about is that is there any kind of way that um, the public can can actually, um, I don't know, write to the media? I mean, I look at, you know, they focus on, you know, one of the Olsen twins and the one that has the weight issue. And it's like, you know, it just seems like we need some type of a campaign so that the media starts to say, uh, you know, you're responsible for this. You have a responsibility to... Um, to own part of what's going on with folks, but it's also you have a responsibility to educate people as well. Is there any kind of initiative for that? Or I think there's there's stuff out there. It's still very early in its development, but there there are programs out there that act as media watchdogs. 
and through those programs, you can also approach not just how news is conveyed, but how people are portrayed, how the body is portrayed, how women and men are portrayed. Uh, going to going to those media watchdog organizations and saying, "Look, I want to play a part in this. I want to I want to write some letters. I want to talk to some people." That is the most activist thing you can do uh, for this. Secondarily, you really need to change. What you're doing in your own life, it helps that I'm not buying the magazines. That, that helps me. But the most important thing I can do is change my own behavior. Uh, in, in this world, it's, it's more helpful if I live as an example of a healthy body and a healthy mind uh, than, if I, than if I write a letter. It's more important that I am a living example of what I believe. And just one final question is, is there any programs that specifically treat men with eating disorders? Is there any, or is it they usually co-ed or? They are, they are mostly co-ed because men's eating disorders aren't very well understood at this, at this point. There are programs uh, in New York, and there's also a program here in Minnesota called the Melrose Institute uh, that has a specific program for men. Okay. And we'll be right back <clears throat> um, to talk about Madness of Life, um, with Maria as soon as our commercial break is over. We'll be right back. Steps to a healthier you. Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Would it be crazy if you just stopped everything, packed your bags and left for a week, a month, a year? What if you left for two years? Would people think you'd lost your mind? What if you were going far away to help in a village on the edge of the Gobi Desert? A village crowded with Buddhist temples, not skyscrapers. A place where there isn't a word for recluse, but a thousand words for community. Would it be crazy to go 5,000 miles from home? To spend time with people the rest of the world only reads about? To build libraries and fill them with stories? Prepare a meal with food you helped grow? To teach children and learn a thing or two about yourself. Would that be crazy? Peace Corps. Life is calling. How far will you go? To find out more, call 1-800-424-8580 or visit peacecorps.gov. A healthy dialogue for your lifestyle. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is... Maria Hornbacher, and during the first part of our program, we were talking about 
um, Wasted, a memoir of anorexia and bulimia. And for the next half of our program, we're going to talk about Maria's most recent book, Madness of Life, which um, she published this year, or was it last year? Last year. Last year, April of 2008. And... um, can you begin by telling us a little bit about the book and how it came about? Sure. Um, the book uh, goes through the story of my own struggles with bipolar disorder, uh, which was something I developed quite young and really battled uh, along the way before I got to a place of real balance and stability. Um, the book came about because... Just like with Wasted, I I felt that there was a lot of misinformation, a lot of misconception out there about bipolar disorder and about mental illness in general. And so what I wanted to do was, again, give a really frank and honest picture of what it was like to live inside a disorder like that so that people would have less fear and more understanding. What do you think is the biggest misconception that people have about mental illness from your perspective? I think people, uh, the biggest misconception is that people with mental illness are dangerous. Uh, and that's, that's simply not the case. Uh, they're, they're no more dangerous than, than the average person in the general population. I know that's hard to believe, but it's quite true. Uh, and the, the second, the second misperception is that people with mental illness cannot be functional, cannot be healthy. Uh, that's very much, uh, a fallacy as well. It's important for people to know that there are healthy, mentally ill people among them all over the place. So, from, from your perspective, you were, um, experiencing bipolar disorder as well as an eating disorder. That's right, although I didn't know it at the time. It wasn't until I was uh, past my eating disorder, until I was in recovery from my eating disorder, that I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. That's quite common. People with bipolar disorder often have secondary addictive issues like drug and alcohol abuse, eating disorders, and cutting uh, that, that mask an underlying disorder like depression or bipolar. And so it was certainly the case in, in my life that the bipolar went undiagnosed and undetected until the eating disorder was... Uh, under control. So from, from your perspective, what, what happened that um, after your eating um, became <clears throat> more in control, what were you experiencing? That, um, and, and how did you not go back to um, the eating disorder? Um, not going back to the eating disorder was a process of ongoing recovery, just like the process of ongoing recovery from a substance abuse disorder. Uh, and so that was something that I was able to maintain over the years. Um, the bipolar disorder reflected or, or manifested itself in really wild swings between depression and mania. And, uh, that's very typical of the disorder. It's, that's the definition of the disorder is the, is the two polar opposites that, that a person experiences, uh, in mood. Uh, bipolar is a mood disorder. And so my, my experience would be that I would be, elated, joyous, full of energy, able to work huge numbers of hours. Uh, and the next day, literally, I would be lying on my living room floor unable to, unable to get up. And so when I was 23, I, I sought help and said, you know, I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand why I feel literally so crazy all the time. And I finally ran into a doctor who said, oh, my God, you've got bipolar disorder. And, and how has that changed your life, knowing that? 
knowing that is uh, the key to recovery. Knowing uh, and and accepting are the keys to recovery uh, and ongoing management of a mental disorder. Uh, however, you first hear that you have a mental illness and you're you're frightened. You're angry. Uh, you don't want to accept it. You're in disbelief and denial in many cases. I mean, how many people really would like to be told that they have a mental illness? We don't want to believe that about ourselves because it's so stigmatized in this world. Uh, and so you don't want to be known as the crazy lady. I really think that I was becoming the crazy lady as, as you, you see it in the media, as you see it portrayed. Uh, and I didn't want that. I wanted to be functional. I wanted to be happy. I wanted to be successful like anyone else. Um, and so I was terrified. I didn't, I didn't want to believe it. And so I did the worst thing I could possibly have done. I didn't act on it. I didn't act with the knowledge. I didn't try and, uh, start managing the disorder for a number of years. Not managing it meant that it got worse and worse and worse until I was totally debilitated. And it was only at that point that I accepted I had a disorder, I needed to deal with it, and that was when I began my recovery. I think that that's a pretty typical reaction. At Westbridge here, we work with folks that have co-occurring disorders, and it's like people go through this like, okay, I acknowledge I have, you know, I'm a cocaine addict. Now you're telling me I have something else wrong with me? You know, this is this is not, I don't want to hear this. You know? Right, Absolutely. You know, I've got enough right now. Thank you very much. Exactly. Um, I, don't, I don't need anything else in my life to uh, to work on. But, you know, keep That's thinking those big... thoughts, Mary, and, and I'll come back to you in a couple months. And, <laughs> and I think that that's really normal. I think it is normal. Uh, there's there's almost a grieving process that you go through when you understand that you have a mental illness because you don't want to do it. It's exhausting. It's tiring. And also it really is such a stigmatized situation where, you know, it's one thing to be told I'm a cocaine user, it's abuser and addict. It's another thing to be told that I have bipolar because calls a cocaine addict uh, a crazy person. That's a lot difficult, that's a lot more difficult to take on a social level than is being told uh, that you have a mental illness. I know, it's, and I think that for women, um, I think it's hard for everybody, but I think there's always that extra hurdle that women have to go over um, in terms of recovery, in terms of, um, you know, we're, we're kind of, at least when I was growing up, it was like you had to be the good girl. You had to be the, you know, the one that was doing all the right things. And then, you know, you, you're faced with all of these situations that have, you know, they're, they're brain diseases, and it's like, I think I think the shame and guilt is is very powerful. I agree. The shame is enormous when you're when you're told that you have a mental illness. It feels like your fault uh, because you're you're living in a world where we're told still, and so many people still believe that these aren't brain diseases. These are character flaws. When you're dealing with a dual diagnosis, when you're dealing with both addiction and mental illness, you're dealing with the compounded fact that many people in recovery don't understand that people with mental illness have brain diseases. And so you meet a lot of stigma even within your recovery community. And that's very troubling and it's very hard to handle. Well, it is. And, and I'm, I'm hoping that as we do more shows like this and we talk more, that people will understand that it, that, you know, um, oftentimes, People in recovery or people in the recovery profession, we stigmatize people just as much as the outside world does. 
and um, and I think we all need to be more aware of of the language we use, our perceptions. That um, this isn't so much about denial; it's about uh, this is a disease that the brain is affected. You know, you've got a brain that isn't functioning well. You can't expect it to act like a normal brain. And um, when people are in the throes of their illness, that's oftentimes when they're denied treatment. You know, so I think we have a long way to go. I agree. There, there is quite a long way to go, even within the recovery community. Uh, so many people, when they when they begin to recover from an addictive disorder like eating disorders, like alcohol or drug abuse, like gambling addiction, they are they are met with. Uh, so much support within the recovery community. However, if someone then learns that on top of that you have a mental disorder uh, other than addiction, because of course, as you know, uh, addiction is a mental disorder. It's it's a mental illness, and it is again a brain disease. Um, however, when you're when you're told in the recovery community that you shouldn't have a mental illness, that really it's a fair failure of character or will, you get so confused because you're looking to these people for support, and really they are your lifeline. And when you aren't getting that support, when you aren't getting those arms around you, it's very very hard to recover. Or if you're told, um, you know, wait a year and it'll clear up. Exactly. There's there are many many misperceptions. They I was told when I when I began recovery from alcohol and drug addiction, I was told time and again for one thing that I didn't need my medication, and that is a very dangerous perception within the recovery community. Uh, psychotropic medication that's important for the maintenance of health for people with mental illness. People believe still that that is using. They, they see that as addictive substance abuse. That's just not the case. Um, so many of us deal with mental disorders like bipolar depression or schizophrenia. We really need our medication to be our most functional and recovering selves. It is very, very difficult, virtually impossible, to recover from your drug and alcohol or other addictive uh, behaviors if you have a stable mental health. Uh, and so it's important that people understand that medication for a mental illness is not the same as addictive using. And we'll be right back for our uh, final segment with um, Maria after this next commercial. We'll be right back. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. To savor something means to delight in, to absolutely enjoy. So why not savor yourself? Author and internationally acclaimed speaker Doris Smeltzer brings her message to the airwaves with Savor Yourself Beyond Skin Deep. Plan to spend an empowering hour with Doris where you will learn to recognize your worth and your beauty beyond society's limited one-size-fits-all mentality. Savor Yourself with Doris Smeltzer, Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. on the East Coast, only on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned 
common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure. There's this girl I kind of like. Say no more. You just have to impress her. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? You know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, oh! There you go. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. Um, This afternoon, we've been talking with Maria about her first book, Wasted, a memoir of anorexia and bulimia. And now we're talking to her about her most recent um, publication, which is a book called Madness, Quote, A Life. And um, can you just explain that the title? Because it's, um, it's Madness, Colon, A Life. So how did you come up with that? Sure. I, uh, you know, the, the phrase is a life just indicates that it's a memoir. Uh, madness is is such a loaded word. I think many people are uh, feel that it's uh, the wrong kind of language to use about mental illness. The reason I used it was to really kind of play up our confusion and fear about mental illness and our perception that it really is just uh, this this incomprehensible, frightening thing. Um, so I wanted people to talk about, uh, when they read this, I wanted them to talk about what their real ideas about mental illness were. Did they think of it as madness or did they think of it as a brain disease? And I wanted people to understand as they read the book that this is a brain disease. This is something that, A, can be treated and, B, is not about character. What um, your journey, is, as you've described it, is um, I think one that's, some, a lot of people might be able to relate to um, being able to identify the most um, compelling addiction, which was your eating disorder, then going into your mental illness, and then you mentioned um, other addictive disorders, and um, kind of almost like a flower opening to find out what was at the core. And can you ex- kind of explain to us that, that whole experience of, you know, like you would said earlier, I dealt with the eating disorder, and now I've got this. What What's it like, that opening up of all those um, illnesses and the treatment of it? Um, at a treatment level, it was very, very uh, apparent that there was a lot of misinformation and stigma even within the treatment community. Uh, a lot of people who are trying to treat people with eating disorders and with addictive, addictive issues and also with mental illness the stigma that they have acquired from the society that we all live in. Uh, many of them also don't know much about mental illness or about addictive disorders. Uh, it's it's frustrating because I remember when I when I went into alcohol treatment, I was put in the uh, mental illness chemical dependency group, which meant that I was put in a group with a number of other mentally ill addicts, and we were given a counselor who knew nothing about mental illness. 
and so we were really just lumped together because they didn't know what else to do with us. They didn't know how to treat us, and they didn't understand that there's an enormous correlation between mental illness and substance abuse. People with bipolar have extremely high rates of substance abuse in a lifetime sense. People with bipolar have 50 to 60% of them deal with substance abuse at some time in their life. Uh, it's just, it's an incredibly high rate. And so people in the recovery community, people who are treating uh, addicts of some kind, really need to understand that that correlation is there and that there is a real need for uh, two-pronged treatment, for approach on multiple levels. Um, I also remember how, how many times I was misdiagnosed when I was younger. Uh, the bipolar was overlooked because people were looking only at the addictive issues. And, uh, and it's important for, for people in the treatment and helping professions to recognize that there may be a deeper issue underlying the behavioral issues. What were some of the misdiagnoses that you, were, um, that you experienced? The most common misdiagnosis for anyone <clears throat> with a mental illness is depression because that's the disorder that is most known about. Uh, people in the treatment professions often know about depression and not much about bipolar or the other mental illnesses. And so uh, I was diagnosed with depression even though I had multiple manic episodes. Uh, of course, People with bipolar often don't go to get help when they are having a manic episode because they're enjoying it uh, until it breaks, and then they aren't enjoying it at all. Uh, And so they go in for help after a manic episode and uh, report that they're depressed. So the misdiagnosis is really understandable, but uh, it can lead to the wrong kind of treatment. It can lead to the wrong kind of medication, and that can be really dangerous. Did you notice that um, when you were... uh when your illness, when your bipolar illness was kind of in your in in the throes of it, did your did your substance use change? I mean, did you use it differently when you were manic than when you were depressed, or was it the same substance regardless? Um, I used it very similarly when I was manic and when I was depressed. My drug of choice was always alcohol, but people with bipolar uh, are are respond in their they have a different brain response to alcohol and drugs than people without bipolar. People with bipolar experience alcohol not as a depressant but as a manic agent. I know that sounds just crazy, but literally uh, people with bipolar, their brains reverse the effects of alcohol and drugs. And so when I drank, I became more and more and more manic. Uh, and, of course, people with bipolar, myself included, often court mania because it feels so productive and you are so elated much of the time. Of course, like I said, then you crash, uh, and that's not much fun at all. And then, of course, I'd use alcohol thinking that would make it better again. And, of course, it made it much, much worse. There are, there are a number of dangers about substance abuse when you've got bipolar or any mental illness. Primary among them, your medication won't work. Uh, substances interfere with it in your brain, and the brain can't process the medication and can't help you. So that's a real danger. Uh, Also, you don't recognize uh, when you've got, when you're in the throes of addiction and mental illness at the same time, you don't recognize or know in many cases that the substances are making your mental illness vastly worse. Uh, and until until you get the substances out of your system, until you choose to recover from your substance abuse addiction, uh, you will not be able to manage your mental illness at all. What has been your experience with um, peer support and um, 12-step groups with bipolar disorder? 
my experience with with twelve steps groups have has been enormously helpful. I mean, peer support is uh, is so important uh, when you've got any kind of addictive issue. There there is not much uh, out there in the way of twelve step groups for people with mental illness because uh, the the mental illnesses are are treated so much on an individual level. There's not much out there peer support, people with mental illness are, are so often isolated, uh, in the, and that's, that's very unpleasant, it's very frightening, uh, and it's not supportive. Uh, so I've found 12-step groups absolutely critical in recovery from substance abuse. Uh, there's not much like that in the way of peer support uh, for people with mental illness. The groups are out there. They're hard to find. I know a few weeks ago we had a, a gentleman on our show that um, was one of the co-founders of Double Trouble, which is uh, mental illness and substance abuse uh, 12-step meetings, and they've just kind Howie. of changed the preamble and some of the wording so that you talk about both illnesses in the it's it's a 12-step format, but you talk about both illnesses. And mm-hmm. he said that it's that it's hard to get groups up and going. That they'll get up and they'll go for a while and. And then they kind of lapse, but um, but there are pockets of them out there which have been around for a long time. Absolutely, Double Trouble is a phenomenal program. Uh, there's there's quite a lot of Double Trouble out in New York, uh, and I wish that I could access some of that even for myself and for many of the people that I know. I think it would be enormously useful and supportive to us. Uh, I would like to see more Double Trouble meetings. I would like to start one, and I think I'm going to try and do that. Howie Vogel, who was just out here, uh, the guy who who set up Double Trouble in the in the late '80s, he's fantastic, and his program is really really uh, visionary. And and I think that it is so important for people with mental illness and addiction issues to start educating themselves about this two-pronged approach to the 12-step program because it can really save lives. And I want to thank you so much for being our guest today. I know we've uh, struggled to, to connect and get our time straight, but thank you for hanging in there with us and being a guest on One Hour at a Time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And if people want to contact you or they want to find out more about your books, um, where, sh- where should they go? They can go to my website at mariahornbacher.com. Okay. Thank you, and everybody have a great week. Thank you so much. Thank you. We appreciate you joining us today for One Hour at a Time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.